2022. It's gone quickly, hasn't it? Here we are and it's Christmas. It's a bit hard to believe, isn't it? Um, and particularly with all the, I suppose, the issues and for, for many people, the, the demands of, of the year. Uh, and as, as Tim really highlighted well, um, you know, we, at this Christmas time we've got a great opportunity, haven't we? We've got wonderful opportunities to actually meet with people and share the real Christmas message, what actually Christmas is all about. So despite all the commercialisation, all the parting uh, and whatever else now kind of comes into Christmas, we've actually got the opportunity to actually explain to people what Christmas is all about. And it was interesting, actually, I've got a text from a, a gentleman who runs a, a network of churches, um, small churches, and he just um, had a couple of beautiful prayers, but one thing he said, you know, let's go out there retelling the story, not retailing. <laughs> retelling, not retailing. And I thought that was a good way to capture um, the moment, so to speak. Now we're right with the technology, so we're good to go. Thank you. Um, yeah, so here we are, Christmas time. And as I say, we've got the opportunity to share about Jesus Christ. It is a great opportunity. It's a kind of an inherent, kind of natural opportunity. But if we share about it, there's lots of questions that people will have, particularly on, like, for example, the reading that we've got today in Matthew 1 about the virgin birth. Because you'll hear people make statements like, you know, surely you don't really, um, you know, believe in the virgin birth as a Christian. Certainly not in 2022, they say. Because we all know that virgins don't have babies. Or you might hear a bit more aggressively uh, that the virgin birth is the biggest load of rubbish that's, that's around. In fact, it's the example of everything that is wrong with religion. It's anti-intellectual, it's just sheer superstition. Or sadly, you may even hear from some Christians, well, you can still believe in, in God and in Jesus, um, even if no real actual virgin birth took place, it's just kind of a spiritual thing and it doesn't really matter. The virgin birth doesn't really matter. So, wow, how do you actually respond to that? If you're sharing, proclaiming Jesus Christ, and particularly in light of what we've read this morning from the Gospels, which detail the actual virgin birth, that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. How do you respond? Because the reality is people think, the average person in our society thinks we are crazy for believing in the virgin birth. They think we're crazy. That's the reality. So today I'd like us just to consider two really big picture issues here, two aspects, I suppose you could say, of the virgin birth. First, why the virgin birth is so crucial to our faith, the importance of, of the doctrine of the virgin birth to the Christian faith. And secondly, a couple of issues, if we've got time, just in practically defending the virgin birth and, the, and, and looking at some of the objections and, and concerns that some people may raise. So, first major area this morning, we want to look at the importance of the virgin birth. Now the question I suppose is, and as I, as I touched on, some, some Christians don't think it's all that important. Uh, you know, right from the start, the scriptures are crucial here. It's very, very clear what the scriptures are, are, are saying, that there is an actual historical virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Matthew writes it very clearly in verse 18. He starts off, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed or engaged uh, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child 
of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, uh, the scriptures go on uh, with the dream um, that Joseph had and that it's explained in that dream that what is conceived, that which is conceived in Mary is of the Holy Spirit. So it's really clear. These are actual historical events. It's clear, it's unequivocal uh, that this is a work of God. And Matthew, in, in verses 22 and 23 of our text, he makes the connection back to the prophecy of Isaiah 7. It's actually Isaiah 7.14. That was written, by the way, 700 years before Jesus um, was born. That prophecy being that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the prophecy. By the way, Jesus fulfilled, I mean, there's various counts on the number of prophecies he fulfilled. That's obviously one of the crucial ones. There's probably well over 300. Some people actually have higher numbers than that. But it is crucial that that was obviously fulfilled by Jesus and Matthew is making that very clear here. And also, by the way, there's a fair bit of conjecture on that Isaiah 7.14. You might have um, read about that or heard about that. Does it mean virgin? Does it, the Hebrew there, Alma, does it mean virgin, virgin or young woman? Um, the answer is very actually clear on that. does refer to a virgin. The Old Testament never uses that word um, in the context other than virgins. Uh, and I think another interesting piece of information on that too is the um, Septuagint, which um, followed, uh, and again, well, written well before Jesus' birth, but was the um, earliest Greek translation by the Jewish scholars. They, they used in the Greek word uh, a word, pathinus, being basically a virgin. So it's crucial that the wording there is about a virgin. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit supervened uh, when Matthew is, is writing to, to, to uh, make the, and document the connection through to the, to the prophecy of Isaiah. Gospel of Luke 2 also um, obviously gives an account of the virgin birth. Luke one thirty five explains the detail of it. Mary was visited by an angel who states, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Now it has massive implications. If you really think it through, it has massive implications, the virgin birth. And it's really interesting, I don't know if you can remember uh, a gentleman named Larry King, who was actually a US um, TV, a really famous, long-serving, very long-serving uh, TV newsman in the United States for, for many, many years. And he interviewed thousands of people, and those people were uh, often very kind of famous, high-profile uh, types of people. But he was asked after his long career, who would he most like to interview and what would be um, the questions that he would ask them? Interesting, um, Larry King, uh, who was a Jew, I believe, by the way, uh, replied to those two questions, that Jesus Christ would be the person he'd want to interview and the question that he would ask Jesus was whether he was virgin-born. In other words, Larry King was actually honest enough and got it. He actually got it, that the virgin birth is critical to who Jesus Christ is. The key is the nature, obviously, of Jesus. Is he really God? That's, that's the bottom line. So the virgin birth, which is a, mi a miracle, is, is, I suppose you could say, one of the initial criterion, uh, amongst others, in determining the divinity of Jesus. 
As I say, fascinating that Larry King's really honed in and gets the importance of the virgin birth to the Christian faith. So, the virgin birth is significant. It's significant for several reasons. And the first thing that the virgin birth shows us is the the actions of God's love, the actions of of God's love in our world, that he uh, takes the initiative. The virgin birth basically demonstrates that God, as I say, is active and he's active in our world. It's not he's dislocated from it, he's active. And Jesus, who is God, comes to earth. And note, by the way, it's God coming to us. He, God, takes the initiative. So Jesus is supernaturally conceived and then he's born in Bethlehem. He grows, he subsequently uh, teaches, his life displays his supernatural nature, that he is God's son. And of course, crucially, Jesus' resurrection shows uh, his divinity, the supernatural uh, nature of the resurrection and his ascension to God's right hand. So Jesus coming to to earth through the virgin birth, Emmanuel, God with us, uh, which we uh, read in verse 23. John Calvin actually writes quite interestingly on this in his commentary that Jesus is um, called Emmanuel, therefore God with us, or united to us, which obviously cannot apply to an, an ordinary man who is not God. So it denotes not only the power of God, Calvin says, but also that union of person by which he, Jesus, becomes the God-man, fully God, fully man, fully human. And the title Emmanuel obviously shows that, refers to Jesus' deity, or his divinity, and his identification as a human, his, his nearness, you could say, to us. So it shows how God comes to us. It shows the great miracle that God, Jesus Christ, could add humanity to his divine nature. And that kind of, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it, in, in some ways it, it, it takes us back uh, to, the, to that perfect um, sinless state in the Garden of Eden before the fall, in the original creation in Genesis, in which the human nature was made in the image of God and at that stage, prior to the fall, was unfallen, sinless. And it could openly relate with the divine. And here now, Jesus, the last and perfect Adam, comes along and shows the divine and human nature can be joined in Jesus Christ himself. And relevantly, that also points us forward too to the future of the new creation, new birth in Christ. So, we do have a God who is with us, and this is seen in God taking, as I say, the initiative, being active in the world. And crucially, God is sovereign. You have to be sovereign to do that, and obviously God is sovereign. He's not lost up there, so to speak, in the clouds somewhere. So that can give us great confidence in our lives as well, that Jesus is, is here, and he is um, sovereign overall. And indeed, despite the, the chaos that we see all around us in a fallen, broken world, and we see those effects all the time, we can still take great confidence that God is in control. He is sovereign and his plan for humankind, which includes literally every one of us in him. And it's incredible too, isn't it, when you consider that God, the the eternal God, (laughs) the maker, the creator of the heavens and the earth, 
uh, the, uh, spoke the universe in, into being, the sustainer of the universe, uh, the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, all-holy, all-wise God comes to earth. That is amazing humility, isn't it? I mean, we, we hear that, but if you really soak that in, it is incredible humility and it's amazing love. It's all done out of love. That is the miracle that God comes to us and takes, takes on, so to speak, uh, adds humanity to become fully God, fully man. That is an incredible thing. And there is no greater humility, no greater love that could ever occur. And it's all done for the uh, salvation of us, for the glory of God. Second aspect, uh, just on the virgin birth that I want to highlight, is the reality of human sin and the need for a saviour. That humanity can't save itself, we can't save ourselves, because of the reality of our sin. So the virgin birth shows that we need a redeemer, doesn't it? It actually just reveals the obvious, that we need redeeming, uh, that we can't redeem ourselves. And although um, society obviously doesn't want to think or talk about it, sin and guilt are profound. That's, that's just the reality. We know from Romans 1 and 2 that there is a God and that in our own lives there is sin. We, we know that from what the scripture says. The reality is there are none righteous, Romans 3.10s, we're all sinners, uh, as we know, from Romans 3.23 and from Romans 6.23, we know the cost of that, the wages of sin, is death. In other words, we need a saviour, simple as that, and complex as that too. And because we're all sinners, then we're disqualified, we can't save ourselves. And that is why there is a virgin birth. That is why Jesus, God, comes to the earth. Matthew 1 verse 21 that Sally read for us makes that very clear. His name is Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the purpose, mission of Jesus. So we have to be realistic that Jesus Christ is the solution to the problem of sin. That he is the saviour. And for those of us who trust in him, we take great confidence as we go about our lives in the crucified and resurrected Christ. Interestingly too, that's also what uh, makes Jesus and Christianity distinctly different from every other religion and belief systems, that God actually comes down uh, to humans, actually is human, that God seeks us, that God physically comes uh, through Jesus Christ, obviously, to the earth. And he comes to the people to be in relationship. Every other religion has it the other way around, searching upwards to God, trying to appease and work their way to God, to try to find God. With Jesus, it's the other way around. So it's about God revealing, God humbly being with us and finding us. So, thirdly, virgin birth is required for the atonement of sins. In fact, the, there is no atonement for sin uh, if Jesus is not fully God and not fully human. So it's required for the atonement of sins. Why is that? Well, he had to be human. And the Heidelberg Confession is quite uh, valuable here because um, it, it explains it very neatly. Uh, the Heidelberg um, Catechism says... Uh, that the, the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. 
So in other words, no, no angel or, or spiritual entity, if you want to call it that, for example, could die for our human sins. It had to be a human, a person who does so on behalf of humans. So human, in other words, human sin requires humans to be punished for their sins by a just and righteous and holy God. Jesus had to be divine too because a mortal, finite human being is unable to bear the infinite price of an infinite, eternal, holy God. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism puts it um, uh, neatly in this way. He must be true God so that by the power of his divinity he might bear the weight of God's anger. And he had to be sinless. The sacrifice had to be sinless. That's including no inherited or original sin. Had to be a perfect offering. And by by Jesus being virgin born, he had no original sin. Because one sinner could not die for the sins of others. And we had it in our readings um, and and, and in some of the reflections earlier, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 really puts this beautifully. Uh, For our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the virgin birth satisfied all those necessities, so to speak. And Jesus was human. He was born of Mary. He was divine, born of a woman, as our title's got. Uh, Divine, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and holy. He was born without a sin nature because of the virgin birth. And as scripture informs us, he lived a sinless life. And we know Hebrews 4, um, 15 puts it um, beautifully, absolutely beautifully. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And you'll even recall that um, uh, Jesus' opposition... Pilate, for example, from his investigation said there was no fault in him. Uh, Even the centurion, of course, praised God uh, at the crucifixion, acknowledging that Jesus was righteous. So, God himself, through Jesus Christ, is uh, and the virgin birth, is the only sacrificial offering to provide the necessary atonement for our sins. And Jesus meets that by being the the God-man who goes to the cross in perfect and total obedience out of pure love and grace and mercy for you and me, for the glory of God. So when you think about it, when, when people come along and, and kind of say, well, you know, and this is perhaps some, some Christian folk who say, well, the implications of, you know, really not believing the virgin birth, well, the implications are really, really significant then, aren't they, from what we've just said. The implications of those who don't believe in the, in the virgin birth are really, in effect, rejecting the scripture, its inerrancy, its, its, its authority. But they're rejecting the actual nature of Jesus, aren't they? That is, they're rejecting that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. And that, you know, you think that through, that rejection leads by, by kind of logical extension to rejecting the basic purpose, uh, extent and significance of what Jesus did uh, for us, his work, the work of Jesus for all of us. Because if Jesus is not virgin born, then there's basically no valid atonement. And if there's no valid atonement, then there's ultimately no salvation. And that means there is no eternal life 
with God. So Jesus is the only way, John 14, 6. He is the way, the truth and the life. And just a couple of other little things um, just from our, from our reading today. Uh, the obedience of um, Joseph to God's commands is, is just um, absolutely wonderful, uh, his example. Um, we can learn much from Joseph, can't we? Uh, and and, and in, in really in our practical living. Uh, because not a lot written about Joseph. There's not a lot uh, in the scriptures on him. But we do know from verse 19 of uh, what we read that he was a just man. And after learning about Mary's pregnancy, Joseph, being a just man, uh, didn't want to make a, a public um, example of her. So he was, um, some versions of the scripture say, he was minded, stinking, uh, to put her away, that is to divorce her secretly. He was obviously thinking um, that Mary had become pregnant by another man. Relevantly, Joseph didn't seek to get revenge. Uh, he didn't demand his rights, uh, which could have seen uh, Mary even stoned. In other words, he was very respectful and gracious to Mary. And then in verse 20, when Joseph is thinking about these things, would, and he would have obviously had been in deep concern, obviously, um, with Mary being pregnant, um, remembering that you know Mary was betrothed to Joseph. That was in in that um, society that was a legally binding contract, uh, and the nature, obviously, the religious nature of the society. And then in this dream, the angel of the Lord appears to him, saying, "Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because the child is that of the Holy Spirit." Now, you think about that, you can read those words, but you've got to remember, Joseph has gone from absolute shock, you know, when you think through what he's, he's experiencing, he's gone through complete shock that Mary's pregnant, to now having an understanding that Mary's child is the Messiah, that Mary's child is the actual son of God. Now, that is obviously huge. Um, he's got to, uh, in the most polite way, try to get his head around that, doesn't he? <laughs> that he's been given um, an enormous responsibility, uh, that he's going to be the, the earthly parent uh, of the Son of God. That is amazing, and that is a miracle, and it is amazing how Joseph responds to all of this. Because if you just, as I say, just slightly put yourself in his shoes, it's pretty significant what's going on. But what's his response? How does Joseph respond? Verse 24 gives us a clear answer, being aroused from the sleep. It's very succinctly put by the scriptures. Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Joseph was obedient. There was no questioning. There was no questioning of God. We've got um, numerous examples of people used by God who did question God. Uh, Some of the big ones, Jonah, Moses, they questioned God. But no, Joseph here just is obedient. No questioning, no doubt, no fuss. He doesn't, um, as I say, question God. He doesn't try to think of or make any excuses. It's a fantastic example of faith and obedience, isn't it? He has just totally trusted God. And we likewise, when we read God's word, are to follow his ways and to be obedient to his teaching and his commands. And we do that, by the way, out of, not out of some kind of um, legalistic follow-through, but out of love, out of relationship. John 14, 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me 
and he will keep my word, my father uh, will love him. Okay, and we'll have a very quick look at just a couple of ways, uh, or a couple of issues, I suppose, of defending the virgin birth. Um, What do we say to our children, our grandchildren, uh, our neighbours, our friends, when they perhaps ask us about our faith, particularly at Christmas time, as we've been saying? You know, what is Christmas really all about? And why do you, why do I? uh, Why do we believe in a virgin birth? What's it all about? So in short, how would you defend that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, that he is fully God, fully human? What's the evidence for it? Um, How do you respond to some of the specific objections? And I think just a really key and, and, and essential starting point is to explain to people that there are reliable historical documents, the scriptures, for the virgin birth. They are reliable documents... Uh, and that, that is not easy, by the way, in today's society because of the uh, media speculation, the scepticism, uh, the biblical illiteracy and general religious illiteracy of our society. But that the Bible does contain... Um, uh, they are reliable historical documents that do contain uh, eyewitness, reliable eyewitness testimony. So in that light, let's just look at a few practical examples around defending the virgin birth. So people have these questions. I think one of the most common, it really is incredible how often this comes up, is, is the very simple thing that virgin births just don't happen. Um, of course they don't just happen. Um, we all know that. But that's how most people actually respond to the virgin birth. That is, virgins don't have babies. If you really think that through, though, how do we respond to that? Is At the heart of that claim against the virgin birth is actually basically the rejection of miracles. That's, that's what it comes down to. Because, as I say, many simplistically just reject the virgin birth because they reject miracles. In effect, they have actually just discounted right from the start the possibility of a miracle even occurring. Before, as I say, you really get into the conversation, it's like, well, that, that just doesn't happen. Now, because the virgin birth is obviously a miracle, um, then they are just, in, a, in essence, ruling it out by assumption. Miracles never happen. That's, uh, there's a title for that. It's called an anti-supernatural bias. But if you think about that, that's not a neutral uh, position because regardless of what our society kind of thinks or says... It is one that refuses to, to even countenance or look at the evidence. Because if you really think it through, if there is a God, and there's clearly evidence for that, then clearly miracles are possible. So it's really important that when we talk to people who, who don't believe in the virgin birth because they don't believe in miracles, is that we get that point across that there is evidence that God exists, and they may ask you for that, and you, that opens up more doors, so to speak. And if God exists, then miracles are possible and for a purpose. And this includes the virgin birth. So, you know, you've got to um, really get the person to understand that there is no basis for just simplistically kind of and automatically just ruling out miracles. And if the virgin birth is possible through God's miraculous power, then we have to look at other evidence for it and follow that evidence to where it leads. 
fulfilled prophecy today, it gives you a hint, obviously. Uh, as I touched on before, Jesus fulfilled many prophecies written, and, and it can be historically proven, written hundreds of years before he was on, on the scene, so to speak. So there's crucial evidence in fulfilled biblical prophecies. Um, Isaiah 7.14, which we read, was, as I touched on before, was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Uh, that, as I say, that time frame, by the way, can be uh, validated by history. But if you think about it, there's several others, and we um, sang about it a little bit earlier. Uh, there are several other incredible prophecies which many uh, people don't appreciate about what Jesus fulfilled. I'm just going to touch on a very, very small number of them, including his birthplace being Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah. Uh, his lineage from the tribe of Judah, prophesied in Genesis. Son of David, prophesied in Jeremiah. Uh, the time of Jesus arriving uh, and dying uh, is prophesied in Daniel. Uh, the nature and purposes of Jesus' death, uh, as well as his resurrection, can be, uh, is prophesied and can be seen in books such as Psalms and Isaiah. So in summary, that Jesus' virgin birth and many other um, key aspects of his, of his life uh, were prophesied about many years in advance and which Jesus fulfilled. One of the other most common objections, very common objections, uh, is, is, is the following, that Christianity just copied the virgin birth from other pagan religions in effect. And that objection, as I say, is, is really uh, common in today's uh, highly sceptical society. Uh, many people have been influenced by, by films and books um, uh, across the internet um, that says the virgin um, story is just basically a copy either of Greek, take your choice, so to speak, Greek, Roman and Egyptian and or Egyptian pagan myths. Sadly, there's a lot of misinformation out there, obviously. Is that true? No, it is not. Um, if you delve into it, and there's plenty of good um, books and information around, but the reality is there is no evidence, no evidence, that supports the virgin birth was a copy. Indeed, there is evidence in history that the opposite is true, that other pagan religions heard about Christianity and the virgin birth and started to copy elements of the Christian account. Uh, what's more, the other religions uh, with their accounts or the pagan, pagan um, stories um, that are cited, they're not even good copies, so to speak. Um, most obviously, um, no myth out there uh, accounts tell of a literal incarnation of a monotheistic god into human form. Uh, moreover, it's important to highlight that the Bible contains uh, historical markers uh, there are lots of historical markers, obviously, that can be tested. It's written as history. It provides detail that was, uh, could be checked out at the time, whereas the other accounts are myth and can't be tested. Another point that people often raise on this is, why would the, uh, in theory, the allegation is that the, the apostles might copy a pagan religion? Uh, monotheistic first century Jews were, were very, um, well, they were smart enough, so to speak, um, that to steal from another um, kind of thought or, or story would be insane. It would be totally against everything they stood for, but it would no, also likewise never convince other Jews out there. wouldn't hold water, so to speak. Uh, why would they do it? As I say, they abhorred paganism. 
Uh, you see that through, through Paul's accounts um, in the book of Acts. So it's clear, it is actually very clear um, from the Bible and indeed supported by other literature of the time that Jesus was a clear historical figure, uh, that there were eyewitnesses uh, that wrote about him uh, and that contrasts dramatically with many other religions and, and other pagan accounts. Uh, just Also just on that, by the way, the, the biblical documents are very early, are very early uh, written. Um, there's no time for an alleged myth development. Uh, it, the, the virgin birth was right up there um, from the start through the scriptures and indeed into the early church with the early church fathers in their writings. Uh, and you, again, there's plenty of um, reliable sources to explain that. So, in conclusion, in summary, the virgin birth helps us to understand that it's God's initiative in the world, that God takes the initiative. He is sovereign and he takes the initiative. It also reflects that we can't save ourselves. We have a need for a saviour and that saviour is Jesus Christ. He is the only person because he is fully God and fully human who is able to be our saviour. Jesus is human, born of a virgin, and so can represent humans. He is divine, God, uh, being conceived by the Holy Spirit and can bear the weight of, of our sins and, and uh, the judgment. And Jesus is sinless, being born of a virgin, and so is the perfect sacrifice, atoning for our sins. The virgin birth is a crucial doctrine uh, that is able to be defended. It can be adequately uh, and clearly defended. As I touched on, the anti-supernaturalism is often, miracles are just rejected, is often the main reason. Uh, there's much evidence for the virgin birth, some of which we've gone through, fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness accounts, reliable documents, and the early life of the church, and not a copy of other pagan religions. Philippians 2, 6-7, it really eloquently states it and summarises it. And let us always have this in our minds right up front as we go about our daily living for Jesus. Because it says about Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And that was to atone for our sins. And, and bring reconciliation. As we head into the Christmas season, let's be ready to answer those questions. Let's be ready to share our faith uh, with our families, our friends, our neighbours, local community, whoever it might be, uh, and, and the questions that they may have about Jesus, uh, and, and pray for opportunities. Um, pray that you can proclaim the truth, uh, that you can defend it with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.15. And be able to explain the fact that Christmas is all about Jesus Christ. It is about God, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us, coming into the world, Jesus Christ, as a human, to save us, to reconcile us to him for the glory of God. And that we, through Jesus Christ, uh, can have new life, new birth, that we are a new creation in him.